Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics, with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Well, Mark, welcome to another episode of Informed Dissent, available on all podcast outlets, including Apple Podcasts. You've been gone, my friend. I'm back from the Balkans. Yes, I am. I know I've had been I've, I've been having to go solo without you. Where where have you been? On some beach, some umbrella drink, uh, in in prison? Where have you been? I was crawling through the tunnels that connect the uh, Sarajevo airport from the sniper nests in northern <laughs> Bosnia, 160 centimeters tall and filled with water. Um, I, I actually was there. I was in Bosnia, and I was going to um, essentially tours of burned out buildings and uh, Holocaust genocide uh, tours, which are not very uplifting, but certainly give you a sense of where things can go south when your government takes a little bit too much control. While I was uh, working and I was interviewing people from that country, which uh, for those who aren't familiar with the 1990s history of Central Southern Europe, was uh, the result of the breakup of Yugoslavia and the formation of seven republics, of which Bosnia is one, also Croatia and Herzegovina, Kosovo, Northern Macedonia, several others, Serbia. And I was interviewing people who are citizens of that country who've been working as contractors for the United States government in Afghanistan before Bagram Air Base was closed and are now claiming that they're suffering from PTSD because of exposures to ground attacks and snipers and mortars and rockets and IEDs and RPGs and all of that stuff on a regular basis. And I had a, a really eye-opening uh, cultural and psychological experience there, which I then began to write about on my Substack articles from Tuzla and Sarajevo. So, so tell, us a bit, tell us about it. What was so eye-opening about leaving our country and visiting, you know, the, the republics that used to be Yugoslavia. Well, I've been making this comment for, well, ever since we started this podcast, uh, that I feel a, a sort of a cultural sickness in Los Angeles and the state of California, and, and I think to some degree in the United States right now. And I've been writing and talking about what I think is the cause of it, why it's happened, uh, why it's continuing. And it's, it's a complex issue. But when I got to Bosnia, I felt very different. I noticed that there was a different energy, a different, um, very hard to define, but easy to perceive experience of being and living amongst people there. And it wasn't because I was on a beach or I was at a party. This was really just day to day, walking around the street, sitting at cafes, uh, having dinner with people outside. That was, that was noticeably different. And I, I both spoke with people and I also just thought about how I was feeling and I, I put the two together as I started writing about it. And what I noticed was and felt was that the people in Bosnia are not compliant and they're not obedient and they're not fearful people. Hmm. And I asked myself why that is. Why should a people that came from a decade of, of war, unrest, genocide, the loss of life, property, economy, and, and to some degree sovereignty. Why should they be that way? And what I came up with after speaking to a young you know, 24-year-old man who spoke very good English, 
uh, was illustrated, I think, in the story that he said. I was sitting with him at a cafe called Sloboda in Tuzla. Sloboda means freedom in, in Bosnian. And that word is a common word that's used in music, restaurants. It's, it's, a, it's a phrase. It's like liberty or, you know, fraternité, égalité in French. It's, it, it forms a sort of national identity. And the cafe is the oldest cafe in that city. Uh, it was probably formed around early 2000. Not much really pre-exists 2000 in Tuzla because of the war. And he said to me, you know, I'm, I'm young. I'm in my 20s. And we never put up with any of this lockdown, masking, forced shots. We, 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 we had nothing of it. And I said, tell me what you mean by that. And he said, well, you know, last year for about 30 days, we were told that we had a curfew. And our curfew said that we couldn't go out after 6 p.m. And I said, wow, that's, that's, like, that's pretty intense. What did you do? He said, we ignored it. He said, I was detained three times by the police for going out at night. I said, well, why did you go out? He said, because I wanted to. I said, then what did the police do? They gave me a ticket. And what did you do with the ticket? I threw it in the trash. And he said, did other people do this? He said, everybody did. Because we all knew that it was BS. The police knew they couldn't enforce it. And we knew it was going to end soon. And there was nothing that they could do. And this was the opposite, the opposite position of what I heard in the U.S. People would say there's nothing we can do as citizens. And there's everything the police can do. So it was like an inversion. Why is that, that, Mark? Is it because they are so closely removed from war? And that in the United States, we've been living in relative peace for hundreds of years. I think there's two reasons. I think for the younger crowd, it didn't have anything to do with that because they didn't live in the war. This guy's in his 20s. But for older people, that's absolutely true. The older people, they know what real sacrifice is. They know what it means to lose your life and your property over a essentially international conflict that's run by corrupt domestic and international politicians. So why is it for the young people? They didn't live through war. I understand it for the old, but what about the young? And what I, what I came up with is, is related to that energetic difference that I, I described, that I, as soon as I, I got off the plane, I could feel it. It's not just that nobody's wearing masks, nobody's uh, afraid. It's not just that. It's that there's, there's a magnetic draw for people of all ages, and, and especially the young people, particularly the young people, towards social connections. When they get up in the morning, the Bosnians, whether they do it consciously or not, I am 100% certain based on their behavior and how they talk and, and what they do throughout the day, they make some kind of decision on who they're going to meet, where, for how long, and what they're going to talk about. And they go about that relentlessly until the time that they go to bed. And if they don't speak to somebody face to face, they feel that something was lost in their day. They don't feel well. Now compare that to young people here in the U.S. Locked down for months on end, virtual happy hour, zooming in from home, TikTok videos, Instagram, other forms of social media, CrossFit and spin classes where you just put on headphones and you follow an instructor on a video and then you drive home and you watch Netflix, you post a few more videos of your spin class on Instagram looking hot, have some ice cream and go to sleep. You don't even speak to a single person the entire day and you feel great. You feel like I did it. I did everything I needed to do. So, so Mark, here, here in the United States, it's not unusual to go out if you're out to dinner and so forth. And you see a group of young people all out to dinner together. Uh, inevitably, they're all on their cell phone. 
texting, on social media and so forth with very little interaction with each other. Are you saying you don't see that in Bosnia where you were? I never saw that in Bosnia, not once. I saw people sending a message to say, hey, I'm gonna be late or where are you? I saw people talking on their phone saying, hey mom, I'm gonna be uh, picking up some food. You want some milk from the store? Okay, and then they put their phone back in their pocket. I never saw people walking around taking selfies. I never saw selfie sticks. I never saw Instagramming. Now, I'm not saying that the young people don't use those apps, but they are peripheral in their location and position in their lives. They are third, they are fourth, they are fifth in line in their priorities. Their priority is to see and speak to people face to face, period. Mm. That's mm. what they do. They have access to the web. They have access to cell phones. They have all of the technology we have, but it hasn't infected their culture because they have been vaccinated against it. And the vaccine, I believe, comes from their intergenerational trauma and war. That's my belief. Mm. I really believe that the young people, you know, and young people have flaws all over the world, but the young people in Bosnia do not see their purpose, identity, and value through a phone and through a virtual relationship. They would find it bizarre. The girls go out at all hours of the night, dressed up nicely, attractively, flirting, joking, having coffee, drinking, dancing, listening to music. The men do the same, and they live to exchange thoughts, words, behaviors, and experience with one another. So, I mean, listen, it's, it's easy to compare to the United States and, and judge young people in the United States and their behavior, judge them correctly. But, you know, you use this word, this line, international trauma from the war, this interge intergenerational trauma from the war as the reason why they're more connected, more communal, and focused on interactions with each other, social interactions, as opposed to fake interactions on their cell phone. And obviously the kids in America have not had this intergenerational trauma from war, if you will, at least not this generation, a generation ago, yes, but not now. So how do, how do you get kids back to without a war or some, uh, you know, group trauma? Um, how do you get kids back to that sense of communal being and the importance of personal interactions, et cetera? I think it's gonna be very difficult in this country for one reason, one basic reason, which is that Americans are not prepared to sacrifice. Hmm. I don't push for and support wars as ways of cleansing the culture by any means, but I do think that there was an enormous, uh, I wouldn't call it a benefit, but maybe a silver lining uh, in the next generation in this conflict zone, which is that the people have learned from their parents and their grandparents passed down through stories, through uh, dinner table conversation, what freedom really means and what the losses were, even if they didn't experience it personally. And, and so for that reason, I think that even though the young people may not have personally suffered like their parents and their grandparents, they know what the, the meaning of sacrifice is. And also, they are not at the pinnacle of their economic success. They have not reached it yet. The neighboring countries are doing much better than them, at least right now, economically. Germany, Austria, uh, the Croatian coast compared to Bosnia. Believe it or not, Albania is actually a more successful economic power now than Bosnia is. And Albania was sort of the joke, the bane of Europe just 20 years ago. And it's booming. Slovenia. 
These countries are, are, are very successful. There's thousands, tens of thousands of young people that are moving to Albania, to Slovenia, to get visas to work. And guess what those countries are doing? And I know this because I spoke to a man who worked there and he knows his friends who got married there and stayed there. They invite you as a young person. They say, please come to our country. You understand our language. You might not be able to speak it, but you can understand it. We can understand yours. Work for us. We will give you an immediate entry visa. We will find you a job. But, but hear this. If you so much as get one speeding ticket your ass is back home. We're booting you out of the country. You want to commit a crime? You want to rape someone? You want to rob? You're going to be in prison. And then after prison, you're going to be tossed over the barbed wire fence and you're never coming back. And they know it and they follow the rules. And anyone who doesn't is immediately and unceremoniously permanently deported. And everyone in the country knows it. Sounds like a lesson we should learn. It is. There are so many lessons that we could learn from Bosnia. Speaking I of, wish we had done of, that here. Speaking of languages, Mark, I know you speak like a dozen of them. Uh, did most people understand English when you were over there? In the capital of Sarajevo, there was tremendous English proficiency among most people. I went into a brass and copper smith shop and spoke to a man in his 70s who had photographs of him with generals from the 80s and 90s from the United States in his shop who's been making handmade brass coffee grinders for 60 years. The guy's like in his 70s now. You bring and one home? I did actually bring one. <laughs> I brought a coffee grinder as well as a coffee bean container that has a hermetic seal through metal Love that it. comes as a set. And it weighs probably, this thing weighs like three or four pounds. It's like solid brass. And it has a steel grinder that he said, you don't have to sarpen for 240 years. <laughs> and this guy, he spoke better English than many people here in, in California. And he also spoke French and he spoke German. And of course he spoke Bosnian. And this man was very well educated. He was wearing a three-piece suit. He gave me a history lesson, philosophy lesson. He was incredibly well-educated. He was erudite. I was, I was very impressed, and many of the people in that capital are very, very uh, culturally proficient. If you go outside of Sarajevo to the smaller towns where people don't go to school, they're mostly laborers, uh, there is actually very little English spoken, particularly of people over 40 or 50 years old. The young people speak English because they like to watch American movies, and they watch videos, and they really want to come to the United States, so they have an incentive to learn English because they don't see their future necessarily is staying put in their hometown. Were you able to use any of your foreign languages? Dobro, dobro. <laughs> <laughs> that means yes, yes. <laughs> I did um, learn about seven phrases in, in Bosnian, uh, five or six of which were not profane. And they helped me with uh, you know, saying hello and goodbye and good morning. And, and that's about as far as I could get. And after that, I gave up because most of the words in Bosnian are um, consonant heavy and out of 15 letters about three of them are vowels and the rest are consonants and some of them have lines through them and I can't even pronounce them. <laughs> it's an impossible language to learn. I don't think anybody even attempts it. It's like Hungarian. Did you at least learn how to say take your damn mask off? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even need to because the only people I saw wearing masks were at the Sarajevo airport and they were all Asian tourists. 
<laughs> of course. And once I left the airport, I didn't see a single mass the entire time I was there. It was yeah. it was amazing. Oh, that's not true. I saw a couple mass on a tour bus, uh, and they were from Austria. But I didn't see any of the local people wearing masks uh, anywhere in the country. Uh, they found it amusing that people would even bother to consider wearing masks. Uh, I was... I, I, it was it was actually quite quite funny when you would go into some stores. They still had those plastic partitions uh, that they they had set up. You know, I guess because of government orders that they all were all rolling their eyes at. And in the hotel in Sarajevo, I remember going to the counter at midnight and it had a giant partition. I, I hate those things. So I made a little joke to the girl sitting behind the desk, and I took the partition and I, I sort of pulled it to the side like I was opening a steel door, and I stuck my head through it, and I said. Um, you know, I really hate these little partitions. I, I'm going to open the door and poke my head in. And she laughed and she said, I hate them too. Thank you very much for removing that horrible thing from my <laughs> my vision. And and then I pulled the, the door back and closed it, you know, on my way out. They, they, they know that this is nonsense. And they really, they actively disobey. They disrespect all of this uh, because they understand that the people giving the orders are corrupt and don't have their best interests at heart. And so they're going to rely on their own wits, common sense, and the people around them to make their decisions, which is exactly the opposite of the U.S. and which is why, in my view, we are still struggling and they are taking off. Yeah, no kidding. And you'd mentioned earlier that you're going back again uh, next week or something. I am. I'm actually leaving in three days and I'm going to be going to northern Macedonia, the city and capital called Skopje and also Kosovo, the capital meaning Pristina. And I'm gonna be spending a week there in each of those towns doing the same work and also hopefully doing some touring and traveling and, and, and just exploring and talking to the locals, uh, specifically those you know, that speak English and um, seeing what is common and what is different uh, among these other two republics compared to Bosnia. I expect it's gonna be very similar with some changes of flavor but I think the underlying mentality is the same. Uh, Skopje is known as the little Prague now. Prague being the capital of what was Czechoslovakia, now Czechia or Czech Republic, which is uh, was really the, 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 the biggest growth city of youth and economy and creativity and art and freedom in Eastern Europe after 1990 when the wall fell. It's now a kind of tourist trap. But some of these little towns and little cities in southern Europe, southern central Europe, like Skopje, apparently are heading in the same direction. Uh, you can open businesses. You can get a coffee shop going with a small amount of money. Uh, you can pull in new art and music and young people. There's tons of, of, of energy and entrepreneurial uh, spirit in these little countries that uh, we just don't see anymore here in the U.S. You know, in California, where we live, you want to open up a business? Uh, good luck. Uh, the amount of money and capital you need just to just to open the doors is tremendous and you want to keep it going with all of the environmental regulations and the forced employee health insurance costs and the uh, the taxes on uh, gross income it, it's it's nearly impossible to turn a profit now and in business in California it's become like uh, like France or or Germany or Spain or Italy or Portugal so a, a lot of people are leaving but these, uh, these countries in Central Europe, you, you actually still have a shot. Despite the corruption, despite the problems, you have a, a better chance of success there than you do in a lot of Western Europe. Would you ever consider moving there? 
I did consider moving there, actually. Uh, I was having steak dinner at a place called Mama Mia Steakhouse on the square overlooking downtown Tuzla with another physician, an interpreter. He's 65 years old. He lives in Manhattan Beach, and he's a psychiatrist. And uh, he, he said to me uh, after our third uh, slice of meat and, and second bottle of wine uh, and 16th uh, fried vegetable, <laughs> which is a five-star restaurant, and for three people, uh, the best food you can get in the whole city, including the desserts, the wine, and the meat, I think it totaled $60, including tax and tip. Wow. He said, I've decided, this is before we got up and left the table, I've decided uh, I'm moving to Europe, and I'm bringing my wife, I'm done. I'm done with Manhattan Beach, I'm done with California. He's already bought a home in North Carolina, which is, and he's got his license there. Uh, and he's doing that sort of as a as a safety, a placeholder, so that if anything really turns violent um, and t- truly nasty here in L.A., he can just hop over there and, and continue to practice. And he's uh, got a place uh, about 800 foot elevation, so there's no bugs and no nastiness. And he is, uh, I think, within a couple miles of the only nuclear power reactor in the state. And he said, I, I moved there spe- specifically because of the power reactor, because all of the executives that run the nuclear power facility, they live in the same neighborhood. Mm. And I thought if the executives running the nuclear power facility feel safe in the neighborhood, then I should feel safe. Well, there you go. And so that's where his new home base is. And he may actually physically move to Europe um, sometime in the next 12 months. And the reason is not because he is anti-American or he wants the US to fail. He, he and I understand this, he believes that um, in his last years of life, He's still very healthy, very active. He can get a a better quality of life, a higher standard of living for less money than he can anywhere in the United States. He can get out and walk to a sense of of energy and community and freedom. He can eat, he can play, he can have coffee and, and, and wine. The people in a lot of these cities, especially Central Europe, for all of their structural problems, the people themselves, not the governments, but the people themselves, still understand what's important in life and they still focus on that and they still make human relationships uh coffee wine food walking basic foundational aspects of life they still make those the core of their purpose and their meaning we in the united states have largely lost that and and that is one of our biggest faults and failings and he just said i don't want to wait for another 30 years until i'm dead to see if we get that back well that's that's quite a broad stroke you're painting the united states with and and while coastal and many of the congested crowded towns i think it's true but when you travel throughout so-called flyover america I, i still think there's a lot of that going on and certainly more so in red states than in blue states I, I used to believe that, and, and now that I've talked to people in those states, I'm, I'm not as convinced that that's still the case. I've had dinner with, uh, with people who live in Montana, for example, doing cattle ranching, and Rahm Emanuel just moved two doors down from this woman's house, and uh, he wants to ban uh, all use of outdoor uh, rifles to shoot uh, varmints, and he wants to force everyone to put in solar panels and to recycle their water. And this is out in, in cattle country. You go to the capital in, in Bozeman. I don't know if it's the capital, it's one of the largest cities. And it, it's basically, according to her, it's like little Seattle. You've got guys with, you know, with uh, uh, knit caps and uh, skinny jeans and green hair sitting around in coffee shops, uh, bewailing the fact that uh, they're still serving uh, 
uh, drinks in non-recyclable containers and they're not putting in uh, paper straws. And this is what you hear in LA, this is what you hear in San Francisco and Seattle, and it is no different there. Uh, this is also true in Texas. It's true in Florida. I know it's true in Idaho. Um, I know Ryan Cole very well. He's running for office. He's a doctor. Uh, and he is uh, a great patriot. And he said Boise is lost. Boise is basically all blue now. So even in these red states, when you go into urban areas, um, they're really turning left. And the reason is that the leftists have destroyed all the beautiful areas on the coast. And so they're, they're moving over. You know, they've, they've, they're like locusts. They've, they've eaten up all the fields, all the good stuff on the coast. And now they're moving inland. And they're, uh, they're taking all their bad values with them. And they're spreading out into the, the non-urban areas in the states because they're very beautiful. You know, Wyoming has got some lovely land. It's all being bought up by people from California who are then imposing all of their green energy policies and imposing their work rules <laughs> restrictions and $25 minimum wage and all that. So I- Come I, on, Dr. McDonald, you're <laughs> painting an awfully grim picture of the United States of freedom here. I, I, I only reflect what I see in here. <laughs> we, I think maybe your lithium level needs to be adjusted or something. I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever thought, you know, I know you love to travel. I know you speak multiple languages. You've gone over to Europe in, in part uh, to do some work as an excuse. And while you were over there traveling around meeting with the people, have you ever thought of doing that in the United States as well? Travel to some of these flyover areas and, and meet the people on the ground and experience that? Well, I have been doing that this past year. I took six trips since uh, November of last year to three different states. And five of the six times I had my flights canceled or delayed by up to 11 hours and didn't even arrive to some, in some cases with clothing or with books and wasn't allowed to return home until the following day. And I was only given a cracker and a bottle of water for 11 hours. Uh, this is what you see in, in dictatorships. And this was before the airline crisis. This is before the 8,000 flight cancellations the weekend I went to Bosnia and the 16,000 on July 4th and the impending shutdown of our entire commercial airline system, which is actually going to happen before the end of the year when all the pilots reach the 1,200 hour maximum FAA grounding rule and there's nobody left to fly the planes except the 19-year-old affirmative action hire that just came out of the ghetto uh, and wears a skirt and has green hair. And that's why he was hired. But he actually only flew planes when he was playing video games. And we're going to start seeing planes actually you know, falling out of the air like, uh, like Aeroflot in Russia. And they're going to be crashing head on at the airports because they thought that it, you know, the joystick wasn't working properly. So yeah. this, is, this is where we're headed. And this is when prices are going to be up two to 300%, $600 to fly from LA to San Francisco, and you may die. So I, I, think, things, I think things are going to get much, much worse, actually. I'm, I actually think things are, are really great compared to the way they're going to be in November. And then after the election, when all the Democrats are voted out of office, all the leftists are actually going to start burning down the cities that they just invaded, and that's going to be coast to coast. So we're going to see sort of a massive uh, country going up in flames like the Dresden firebombing. That's what I expect is going to happen after the election in November. So I think we'd be lucky to, to actually survive uh, by December 31st of this year. So if you want to get out and wait <laughs> until January 1 of next year, Europe is a good place to go and sort of ride it out. Uh, gotcha. All right. <laughs> Thanks for the uplifting, yeah. hopeful message. Everybody now, like me, that? <laughs> Merry me, Christmas. Let, let, me, <laughs> let me share you. Let me share with you some good news. You know, we, as you know, our podcast is reached around the world, not just in the United States. 
And we have a lot of listeners that email us with questions and comments and so forth. And I want to share with you an uplifting comment. This is from Lisa, who is an RN. Retired RN has been against the popular narrative from the beginning. I am truly thankful, maybe not after listening tonight, for physicians like Dr. Jeff Barkey and Dr. Mark McDonald and many others who have risked their careers and reputation seeking truth. Uh, this was, uh, she had heard an interview I did when you were gone with Dr. Gear, who publishes a, a newsletter and says, I would greatly appreciate being added to the list of recipients of the Real Health Flash newsletter. Thank you. So I was one person who at least maybe up until tonight appreciated our uplifting, courageous, fighting message and that gave people courage to, to carry on. And we just lost her. We're down one listener. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one, by the way, I thought I'd share with you, and this is from Mary. I won't share her last name. I'm a 64-year-old math and science, sixth grade teacher in Southern California area. This is my second career. My first was in Riverside County Parks, but I teach because I dearly love my students and enjoy teaching. I am married with four grown children and with uh, guardianship of two grandchildren. And then she goes on and says, I am writing all of this because I want you to know how you changed my life. One day, I chanced upon your podcast. I listened to podcast after podcast and finally was able to accept that I was not the one who was crazy, but the world itself was in a state of mass insanity. I know this in my head, but was not able to reconcile this knowledge with my emotions. Your common sense and scientific analysis gave me the basis I needed to accept the glaringly obvious mass dysfunction in our society. In one of your broadcasts, one of you mentioned that we should meet with people of like-mindedness. And then this is her question for you, Mark. I would appreciate it in a further broadcast you would address how to go about finding and meeting up with sane people. Also, what are some activities besides moving to Europe that you, can, that you could engage in at those meetings to protect our freedoms and to live a life without fear? Well, Again, that was going to be my answer. <laughs> Your answer central is Europe. Europe. <laughs> Move to Central Europe. Everyone around you is going to be like-minded. Or even Eastern Europe. I think Eastern Europe would be an even better option as long as you stay away from Russia. But uh, certainly uh, Slovakia and Moldova and Bulgaria. Uh, Bulgaria is actually a, a wonderful place. Bratislava uh, has a lot going for it, even though it sounds really awful. I I still believe that, that finding community bonds and like-minded people is the solution. But coming back to Los Angeles and stepping off the airplane and smelling what I smell and seeing what I see and hearing what I hear, which is uh, really just a cesspool, and watching people running around with two and three and four masks on their faces, not making eye contact, uh, and then you know spreading that out to all of Western Los Angeles. I was on Sautel Avenue yesterday in West LA, which is sort of like little Japantown. And it's about 80% Asian, and it's probably 90% uh, under, say, 32 years old. I think 60 or 70% of the people, all of whom were college student age for the most part, were walking around outside with their friends or on dates wearing face masks. Mm -hmm. and, and they consider that to be appropriate and normal. Now, where are you going to find like-minded people in that mess of insanity and stupidity? You're well, if you're, one of, if you're one of those type of people, you'll find like-minded people. But keep in mind, now you live in the greater Los Angeles area. I live down here in 
a bastion of freedom down in Orange County. At least there's much more freedom down here. And it's rare now that you see people going out to dinner with masks on. You still see the occasional crazy person driving in their car by themselves with a mask on, but much less so than you see in the in the L.A. area. And in part because of the people that live here, in part because of our elected leadership, in part because we have a constitutional sheriff in Orange County, Sheriff Don Barnes, who, by the way, recently put out a letter that said as a result of the recent Supreme Court ruling, we will no longer require a good cause statement uh, in order for you to get a CCW. We will be issuing CCWs without a good cause statement, assuming assuming that you, you don't have a criminal record, pass a background check, and so forth. So I think that's part of the difference as well. Although up in L.A., you do have uh, Sheriff uh, Villanueva, who uh, has a similar attitude as far as the issuing of CCWs. He does, although I know that the uh, wait period for review of your application is between it's like seven eighteen to, years. It's it's pretty bad. It's seven to nine months at this point. So, um, well, the the good news, Mark, because you haven't formally been for, officially been issued a CCW, is your name, address, birth date, uh, and all vital statistics uh, wasn't accidentally released by the state of California. That's true. There's a, there's going to be a lot more accidental releases of information uh, as a as a, a hint to people if they want to exercise their freedom and their rights that there's a cost that they're going to have to pay and certainly um, a, a potential uh, threat waiting in the wings. Which is why I think I think reasonably speaking, I think moving uh, not maybe not necessarily to Europe, but moving to a neighboring county or town um, is is not a bad idea. Um, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be free of these problems forever. Freer. Um, freer. There, there, there are gradations and, and there, there are oases of places um, in, in, in Orange County, for example, where you actually do have more freedom. But uh, there are places in Orange County that are just as bad as L.A. too. So it depends on where you are in the county. It's, it's, it's really variable. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know how long the oases can hold out. A lot of it has to do with, as you said, voters and votership and the power of the state to take over the county. Uh, you have these emergency orders coming down from, you know, from the governor, Gavin Newsom, that in many cases supersede those of the county. Uh, and we have now, you know, we still have uh, a corrupt county board of supervisors in L.A., that uh, is uh, still supporting the fake Dr. Barbara Ferrer in the public health department, who now into year three of this faux pandemic has announced that starting August 1, she's going to reintroduce mandatory indoor mask mandates throughout the entire county of Los Angeles. This is middle of 2022, and this is still going on. So what you're advocating for is basically like a cultural Atlas shrugged. So we should go run off and find uh, uh, Galt's uh, gulch and and escape to uh, Eastern Europe or something. What I think we should do is I, I think that we should find a place that we can that we can leave, kind of like the uh, you know like like an army that's in a full conflict. They always have an escape plan. They have a place where they can go because if you're going to be routed, you don't want to just stand there and and let the enemy massacre you with a machine gun. You know, uh -huh. I, I think that everybody needs to have a backup plan. And I think actually, in a way, that should, that should provide more courage. Because if you have a backup plan, you can fight until the very last moment because you know if, you always have a place to go. If only you were General Custard's uh, uh, psychiatrist, maybe things would have gone different. 
General Custard? Yeah. Custard's last band. <laughs> I think you mean Custer. Custer. <laughs> General Custard is a is a snack shop on Pico. And they it's, sell it's dessert treats. One. It's a good one too. <laughs> Custer's last stand would have gone differently had he listened to you. <laughs> he should have. I have a lot of insight. So, Mark, I'm going to give you, as we wrap up this episode, I'm going to give you a chance to redeem yourself with some uplifting, uh, inspiring good news for our listeners that are just looking for hope from informed dissent. Silence. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listen, well I'll, share, I'll share the good news then. Here, here's my perspective. Uh, it's been a very difficult two and a half years, as you and I both know, as we've been on the front lines of this battle. And what I have found most helpful is to find people that are like-minded and encourage them to step outside of their comfort zone uh, and to encourage them to stand up for their beliefs, for their rights, for their values, and to not cower in the face of pressure. And when we stand together with other like-minded people, when we don't feel alone, we're able to accomplish things. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a pushback. We're seeing politicians being recalled, for example. Uh, we're seeing school boards, even in liberal uh, Sacramento and, and San Francisco, where they're being recalled. We see elections starting to come our way, and we see an awakening of the American spirit. So while things may look grim, and there's this hope of moving to Central or Eastern Europe, and I, and I understand that, I still think there's hope for America, not by electing the right politician, by an American revival from the grassroots up uh, that will ultimately lead to the top, by a spiritual revival in the United States when we see brave pastors like Tim Thompson and Rob McCoy and, uh, and, and others. Um, I, I still think there's hope, and I'm not, I'm not quite ready to give up on America, uh, but having an escape route, I understand that. Um, and certainly I'm, I'm well prepared, uh, but I'm going to continue to fight as long as, uh, as long as God has that in his mind to allow me to do so. I spoke at a church yesterday and the topic was, and it was in the OC actually, the topic was psychological preparedness. And what I told people was that, yeah, physical preparedness, economic preparedness, that's all important, but the psychological preparedness is critical. And if there's one thing that those who have survived this in the last two years have now learned. It's that we can't just sit on our laurels and we can't just wait for other people to solve our problems, electing people to fix things, hoping for someone else to, to go and make that sacrifice. We have to prepare ourselves psychologically for the next crisis. And that means being very honest with ourselves what we can and what we can't give up. What are we willing to sacrifice and what are we not willing to sacrifice? And I think that that focus has been one of the only benefits that I've seen in the last two and a half years from all of this mess. It's that many people are now much more focused and they're able to say to themselves, I'm willing to give up the following. And I, I, I'm hoping that when the next crisis comes, and I guarantee you it's going to happen before the end of the year, we're going to find another one that the response is going to be much more sanguine and much more mature and much less foolishly naive and, uh, to, to quote the Bosnians again, uh, obedient and respectful, but actually disobedient and disrespectful. And to know that it's going to come at a cost, but it's a cost that we actually must and have pay. So that, that's what I think. 
All right. Well, Mark, listen, I've enjoyed following your travels on social media and your Substack. Uh, l- let our listeners know how they can follow you while you travel back to Europe. I'm, I'm hoping to, and I will, I plan to su- submit some more writings on my Substack in the next few weeks from where I, where I will be, which is at DissidentMD. So if you go to Substack and you type in DissidentMD or you just type in my name, you can find it. And if you forget that, you can just go to my literary website, which is dissidentmd.com. And that's where I have links to that Substack account, as well as my Facebook page, my Twitter page, and until last month, my LinkedIn page, which has now been taken down. And very shortly, I should have my second book, Freedom from Fear, published, perhaps when I'm actually in Europe, and that will be available for sale on Amazon and through the website. Well, wonderful, Mark. Uh, Great being with you on another great episode of Informed Dissent. Uh, Safe travels. I look forward to you getting back. And in the meantime, uh, we may uh, record an episode or two without you um, while you're you're away. So stay safe and we'll see you soon. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist, informed dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.